0: While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown god. Now, what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to, God. to God. Thanks, John.
1: Do you keep that open in front of you. We're going to have a look at uh, this uh, conversation, uh, this speech that uh, Paul gives as he's in Athens. I wonder if you can remember the last time that you arrived somewhere that you had never been before, uh, that you had some time in a different culture, a different place. I think the most memorable time for me, the most distinctive time for me, was the very first time I went to Northern Ireland. Um, I had uh, met my wife-to-be, Catherine, um, when we were both at university um, in England, and we went over one bank holiday weekend. It was quite a significant weekend because we were going over to tell, partly to tell her parents that we'd got engaged after just eight weeks. Um, And... um, it was all fine, it was 23 and a half, 24 years ago, so it obviously worked out fine, but it was a bit of a shock to everybody's system, so my, you know, I was all slightly on edge anyway, and we arrived in Northern Ireland, a place that I assumed I knew, not because I'd been there before, but because it's, hey, it's Northern Ireland, it's all part of the you know, same country, and it was so different. There were things that I just had my sort of eyes out on stalks. In particular, and bear in mind this is 24 years ago, um, were the Joint Army Police Patrols. So you had white Land Rovers, armoured Land Rovers, with people with guns hanging out the back. There were uh, roadblocks in the road where you had to you know, hand over your ID. Um, there were regular um, sort of uh, bomb alerts and times when if you'd be in a shop and suddenly it would all be, everybody would be evacuated. It was a different world from what I was used to. Whereas for Catherine... She was quite surprised that I was surprised. This is what she'd grown up with. Um, She just knew it like the back of her hand. It wasn't odd or strange. When you walk into somewhere new, you see things with fresh eyes. The question is, how are you going to react? Um, Paul arrives in Athens. He's never been there before. It's brand new for him. And we're told that as he was walking around Athens, verse 16, he was greatly distressed. Now, actually, that word uh, that gets translated into English, greatly distressed, is far stronger in the original language. It has something to do with... it really expresses a sense of your guts being absolutely sort of twisted up with distress, with trauma, with angst. He sees this city full of idols, a city that, I mean, if you think in tourist terms, absolutely the place that you'd want to visit, especially in the ancient world. Athens, maybe not a big city in terms of people, but huge in its worldwide influence in terms of the classics, in terms of philosophy and writing and the arts and architecture. And he walks around and he sees it with these fresh eyes and his guts are absolutely twisted up. Why? Because the city is full of idols he has this good news of Jesus we were seeing last week how he was in another part of the ancient world uh, talking to fellow Jews like himself wanting to tell them about Jesus and we were talking about how he retold this Jewish story all the way back to Abraham and then Moses and the exodus and the wilderness and the promised land and he shows them how Jesus fulfills the deepest longings of their heart completes their story but what on earth is he going to say in Athens? What's he going to say about the good news in a context where the last thing they want to hear is the Jewish story? They're not Jews, they're Greeks. The last thing they want to hear is about Abraham and Moses and the wilderness and the promised land. That's a foreign language to them. The last thing they want to hear about is the Messiah. They've never heard about the Messiah, least of all, longing for one. Uh, they're not even really going to want to hear about sin. The Jews, at least, had this concept of sin. They had the sacrifices and the temple and the Holy of Holies. For the Greeks, not an issue. Paul had to be careful that in bringing the good news of Jesus, he wasn't answering questions that nobody was asking. Of course, that's our same challenge today. If we know the person of Jesus Christ, if we feel that he's good news for us, we rightly have that desire to tell other people the good news. The question is, are we going to end up trying to answer questions that nobody's asking using a language that makes no sense context that isn't context for others speaking into a culture that isn't there and he's got a quite a challenge on his hands these first few verses show that he didn't go down terribly well they weren't very happy with him they call him a babbler there in verse 18 which is actually again quite lot, far stronger in the Greek than it is in our English it was a sort of scatterer of words they're basically accusing him of not being very coherent not making a lot of sense and then and this would be for them quite a big deal they would accuse him of bringing foreign gods foreign gods now you and I might not think that's a big deal for them that was a huge deal if you've ever heard of Socrates a very famous uh, Greek philosopher he had been put to death because of the exact accusation of proclaiming foreign gods. And then they seem to get the wrong end of the stick about him. There in verse 18, when they talk about he seems to be advocating foreign gods, it's because they think he's talking about two gods, Jesus and Anastasis. Now, you'll notice the the word or name Anastasis doesn't appear in our passage. It's Jesus and the Resurrection. But actually, almost certainly, they didn't understand that he was talking about Jesus and being raised from the dead. We get the word resurrection from the Latin, but actually he'd have been talking Greek at the time. And resurrection was also a name, anastasis. And they thought he was talking about gods. This is a city full of temples. There is a, you can still see many of them today, or at least the ruins of them in Athens. He was assuming they were bringing in, he was bringing in two more gods to put alongside all the rest... With their idols, and he was simply coming in and saying, Oh, I've got two more for you Jesus, Anastasis. You can pop them in there next to Zeus. That would have been a Roman one. You know what I mean. Piling them in there amongst all the rest. The question is, how is he going to speak to them about the good news? How is he going to speak in a way which is relevant? How is he going to speak in a way that they will hear and they will listen? It's the same challenge for us today. And I want to suggest that what Paul does is to approach things in exactly the same way that you and I need to approach not just another culture as if we're somehow foreign missionaries going off to some far-flung land, but about how we need to approach our own culture and our own day. And, to add to that, if we're people who are maybe on the outside of faith looking in, considering whether this Christian faith is relevant to our lives, we've got to do the same for ourselves. Because what Paul does is he looks properly at the culture in which he's walking. He listens and hears well enough to the culture that he's trying to speak to, so that he is able, on the one hand, to find things that he can affirm, longings of people's hearts that he can applaud and warm to and speak to, but at the same time understand the culture well enough that he can point to their shortcomings And point them to Jesus, the one whom their hearts long for without even knowing his name. Verse 23 says, as I walked around and looked carefully. I wonder whether we look carefully, listen carefully to the culture that is so familiar to us that it's like we're fish being asked to describe water. It's simply the space in which we swim. Well, his starting point, just to illustrate it, uh, in verse 22, is simply the number of temples. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus. That was a, not quite a court, but a sort of official meeting place of those who argued about worldview, who argued about how to understand and believe about the world. And he says, "'Men of Athens, I see that in every way "'you are very religious.'" Now, that's a big deal, actually, that would be very easy just to miss. Here is a man who, when he arrives in Athens, we're told, is so knocked sideways by the number of temples that his guts are in knots. He is absolutely just traumatised by the number of temples. Why? Well, because he was a good Jewish man. He'd been brought up since, since the age dot to believe that the most important thing that you could possibly believe about anything was that there is only one God. And you shall have no idols of even him, let alone any other so-called gods. And yet, here he is, able to stand up in front of the Areopagus and say, not, you're a terrible pagan heathen bunch, you're all going to hell. What he actually says is, I've looked carefully, I see you are a really religious group of people. He starts in a good place. He starts by affirming the desire of their hearts to worship. Every human being has that desire, whether they know it or not, to worship and be part of something bigger than themselves. But then he immediately, in verse 23, goes on to the first of three little moments, each of which we could spend a lot of time on, but we're not going to spend much time on any of them, where he picks out a little group in the crowd... In Greek society, there were very definite people groups who believed very particular things. And in particular, in this little speech, he picks out the the people who belonged to something called the Academy. He picked out the Epicureans and he picked out the Stoics. Now, honestly and truly, it does not matter at all if you know lots about any of those or if you've never heard about them at all. Literally in just a minute or two, we can see, we're going to be able to see how Paul, who did understand those philosophies, is able to say on the one hand, yeah, this thing you believe, I can go with that. That's a real longing, that's a real desire, that's a good thing. But he's able to say in each case, it doesn't go far enough or it leads you down the dead end. The person you really need to meet is Jesus. The first bunch are the people that were called members of the academy. They are what we'd call in our days agnostics, those people who simply want to say about God, we don't know. Now, you can have two different sorts of agnostics. There are agnostics who, in my mind, are the consistent ones who say, not only don't we know, we don't know whether we could know. Bear with me for a moment. I think there's an inconsistent agnosticism that that doesn't just say, we don't know about God, but I'm absolutely sure we cannot know about God. In other words, I'm agnostic, but I'm absolutely sure in my agnosticism. That's a sort of fundamentalist agnosticism that doesn't quite work. Not only don't I know about God, but you can't possibly tell me, because nobody can know. Well, they were more like that, and that's why they had this temple to an unknown God. They looked at all these other temples and they rather looked down their noses at them and they said, well, you can't possibly know. You can't possibly imagine that you've got them all taped. There could be lots of gods out there you don't know about. So we're going to have a temple to an unknown god. They'd have been delighted to hear Paul saying that. Their ears would have pricked up, their hearts would have been open. And then he says, that which you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. In other words, I'm really glad you're open-hearted. I'm really glad you're religious. I'm really glad you recognise that this isn't enough. But that which you worship as unknown, I am going to proclaim to you as known. Verse 26, he moves on to the Epicureans. They were a bunch of philosophers and believers who did believe that they were God's. But believed that you could not possibly know, nor were you meant to know these gods, because they were far off in a godlike existence, and that we on earth had to live an Epicurean life of living out a good life, a life full of virtues, a life of values. So they'd like this next bit that Paul says, verse twenty-four: "The God who made the world and everything in it is not is." is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands. The Epicureans would have been clapping at that point. Good stuff, absolutely ridiculous behaviour, believing that you can go into a temple and meet with God. But, but, verse 27, God did this so that people would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. In other words, he's able to affirm their sense that actually it's ridiculous to imagine that God lives in a house, that we can create a place that somehow contains God. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's made us, we're his creatures. But, says Paul, he's made us so that we can seek him. He's made us so that we can know him. Yes, but, yes, but. And finally, The Stoics. Stoics are a bit harder to both understand and explain, but fundamentally they believed really that everything was God and that God was everything. That if you looked at the stuff of creation and if you looked at one another, there was God. And so they'd have loved him quoting some of the Greek poets. He quotes a Greek poet, as Paul, at the end of verse, in in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, and we are his offspring. Again, the Stoics. Would have been clapping Paul at this point, yeah, absolutely, he's all around us, he's all within us, he's closer to us than breathing, fantastic. But, there's a problem with believing that God is everything and everything is God, and that is that there is no sense of what in Christian terms we would call sin. That means those things about us that we know are selfish, I always say that sin is best understood by being remembered to be a little word with I in the middle of it. It's those attitudes of our heart and those actions that we do that simply have me first. None of us respect that. None of us think that's a good thing. Selfishness is that most fundamentally wrong of human life. And Paul wants to say to them, if you simply believe everything's God and God is everything, you can never say to anyone, that's wrong. And that's why he then points them onwards to judgment. Verse 30, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world. How do you know all this, they'd have been saying to Paul. How can you turn to the academy, to the Epicureans, to the Stoics, and say, yes, but? Where does this but come from? How can you know that we haven't got the whole? How can you know that there is something beyond, something better? And for Paul, it's all about Jesus. Verse 31, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man. That's Jesus he is appointed. He has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. If you get a chance, take 10 minutes to sit down and read Acts 13, his speech to the Jewish synagogue, and Acts 17, his speech to the Areopagus. Same Paul, same Jesus, same good news. You could not find two more different speeches. Why? Because the context is different. The culture is different. The story is different. The longings in people's hearts are different. He listens and he looks well enough to be able to say yes to those things that are going to lead people to Jesus, but to those things that don't take people far enough or that hold people back. I wonder how we would do that in our own culture today. Yes, but. Now, I can leave you to do that in your own lives. I want to give you one worked example, a brief one, a sketchy one, one you may not even agree with. Um, I was watching a bit of Glastonbury last night. I've, I've decided that at the age of 47, I'm probably old enough to go to Glastonbury now, um, and... Um, Keep trying to persuade my family that it would be fine, um, but for now, but for now, I'm going to do the properly middle-aged thing and watch bits of it on TV. And um, I don't know whether any of you watched Foo Fighters last night at all. Yeah, I'm glad to see there's a few. Thank you. Oh, that's good. That's good. I'm delighted to hear it. Okay, there was a moment. Um, I, actually, they're not particularly a, a, my sort of music, but they are remarkable performers um, and, and have a passion and a verve and a life to them that is enviable. Um, Makes me tired just watching them. But there, is a, there was a moment, in the, I only saw about 10 minutes, but there was a moment in their set where, I think quite unexpectedly to them, the whole crowd are singing. Um, I mean, there are, I don't know how many people are in the crowd at that particular stage. I mean, it it's thousands upon thousands, just a sea of humanity um, out ahead of them. And there was a moment where the whole crowd are singing, and they stop singing and playing on the stage. And the lead singer of Foo Fighters, whose name has just gone out of my head, Dave Kroll, thank you so much. I'm very impressed how many of you know that. Um, just stops, and he's listening to them. And I don't know whether you spotted it, but he has this, he's in ecstasy, is the only way I can describe it. His face is just, he's, he's astonished, he's delighted, he's, he's, you know, in the heavens. He's just blown away, and he just listens. I mean, he almost can't bring himself to break in as the crowd sing, and the crowd sing, and the crowd sing. I wonder why people go and want to be part of something like that. Actually, at the moment, I even say that. The answer is so obvious. Well, why wouldn't you want to be part of something like that? Here is a place in which the power of music, the possibility of joy, the strength of belonging the awesome sense of being part of something bigger than ourselves, the opportunity to express joy and belonging and common humanity in total freedom and abandon. If you carried on watching that clip, you'll know exactly what I mean about complete and total abandon in public. I won't go into that here. Um, is absolutely written for all to see. And as Christians, we want to say, before ever we get into the whole stuff that Christians are known for, where it's all about what we shouldn't be doing, you know, we don't like that lyric, or we don't like what they're doing over there. It's not that we don't say that. But before we get to that, we want to say, absolutely, the Christian faith says that we were built for more than this. We were built for more than simply nine to five jobs and the drudge of every day. We were built more than simply to be bored with Monday morning. We were built for more than simply... Pushing paper, changing nappies, doing the washing. We were built for more. That longing is absolutely right. But, we want to say. Yes, but. Togetherness is not enough. In humans' history, humans have come together, felt part of something much bigger, and have done terrible things as a mass crowd, as well as wonderful things. Togetherness is not enough. It has to be togetherness for good. Ecstasy is not enough. I don't just mean the drug, but it's a good example. It's not enough simply to feel good because feelings can destroy us as well as grow us, as well as fulfil us. Heroes are not enough because heroes have feet of clay. They will let us down. All of those things actually point us to the ecstasy and joy, to the sense of belonging and togetherness, to the sense of fulfilment and completeness that we actually find in the person of Jesus Christ, the one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who offers his spirit to be with us, to connect us in with something bigger than ourselves, to belong to God's big family that spreads around the world and through every culture and through every time, the one who enables us to be free, utterly free in our worship, the one who brings significance not just to that five days in the year when we can go camping in our wellies, but to the everyday Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning of our week that is significant and full of joy in him. We want to say yes, but there is more, so much more. I wonder whether we see our culture, don't just swim in it. I wonder whether we hear our culture, don't just sing along to it. I wonder whether we're able to communicate the good news of Jesus in a way that people will hear and a way that people will respond to. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for the example of Paul. Thank you that even though he was appalled by what he saw, distressed by all these temples and idols, thank you that he was able to step into that culture for long enough To speak affirmation of what was right and good and appropriate. To really understand the longings of people's hearts and to point people to you, Jesus. We thank you for the joy that we find in you. We thank you for the life of your spirit at work in us. We thank you that our Monday through Friday, through Saturday lives of working and family and friendships and community are as important to you as our Sunday worship. We thank you that we found in Jesus, the one who answers the longings that are deep inside us. And we pray that you would give us both courage and wisdom to speak your good news to a world that so needs to hear, but thinks it is all simply an irrelevance. Speak through us and speak to us this week, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.